It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and hosts of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Welcome to another episode of The Nuanced Life. We are so excited to be back here. The kickoff of The Nuanced Life is going great. We appreciate all your feedback. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. We caved and went on all social media platforms because the people require it. And we try to be in the business of pleasing the people, don't we, Beth? We do. We do. Um, As one person said, see you later, life. (laughs) We're going to spend all this time on social media, but that's okay. That's true. It's always great to have these conversations with everyone. So in our first block today, we always talk about something that's been on our minds a lot. And this has been a couple of weeks ago. But Sarah, you and I had a conversation while we were together in person last. If you don't know, Sarah and I live on kind of opposite corners of the state of Kentucky. So it's it's a a long state. It's a long state. It's a real treat for us when we get to be together in person. And while we were together in person last, I shared with you, Sarah, that I had recently been to a spiritual gifts workshop. And during that spiritual gifts workshop, we were asked at one point to write down our three favorite stories of Jesus from the Bible. And that was kind of an uncomfortable exercise for me because I think that I've sort of edited a lot of heavy Jesus talk out of my vocabulary for a lot of reasons over the past few years. So it was kind of a a big moment for me to just sit down and say like, oh, I'm going to talk about my favorite Jesus now. But anyway, I started thinking about it and I very quickly came up with my three favorite stories and I realized that they were essentially sad Jesus, angry Jesus, and contemplative Jesus. So I thought about the story where Jesus was uh, weeping over the death of Lazarus, his friend. I thought about the story where Jesus became angry in the temple because of the way that it was being misused. And then I thought about the story of the woman who was about to be stoned and Jesus drawing in the sand kind of mysteriously and then looking up and saying that the person without sin should cast the first stone. And what it made me think about is how I think what I value most in my faith at this point in my life, it's not so much um, stories of miracles 
and moments in the Bible that are about what God does for us. It's more about the fact that there was a, a decision to experience every emotion that comes with being fully human. And that coexistence, that feeling of God with us and the decision to not have to experience the pain of humanity and choosing to do it anyway, that I value so much as a part of my faith journey right now. And so, Sarah, we had a good conversation around that while we were together last, and I thought that might be an interesting thing to talk for a few minutes about today. Um, surprising no one, my favorite Jesus is Righteous Anger Jesus. Um, I really enjoy the um, aspects of Christ's journey that were just fundamentally about tearing down power structures, challenging um, society and cultural values and norms, and just saying, why? Why are we doing it this way? Um, I, you know, these are the problems with doing it this way. You know, Jesus in the um, flipping the tables, big fan of that. So that that's to part of me is the part that um, no matter where I was in my sort of faith journey or which denomination I was attending, that's always been the the aspect of Christ's story that always appealed to me, especially because as a woman, a lot of that is challenging the idea of like, women's women the inclusion of women's voices what women we should talk to what part of women's um contributions we should value or shouldn't value so that's my that's my favorite jesus well and i think that the emotional experience of it is part of what makes me value it so much because i am very controlled emotionally as <laughs> long time <laughs> listeners of fancy politics know it's been important to me in my life to really manage my composure. And I find myself less willing to do that the older I get. And I think that I'm coming to understand that there, there is value in being able to manage your emotions. There is value in being able to maintain composure. I still value my ability to remain calm. However, there is something in weeping, anger, contemplation, enigma, (laughs) that is part of the experience of being fully human. And I think that I have shortchanged myself on some of that because I have taken emotional management to, one might argue, an extreme place, especially (laughs) in building kind of a poker face that I believed was necessary for me professionally as a young woman. And so... The experience of being fully alive, to me, is becoming much more dependent on having and expressing some fairly intense emotions. And to know that that's modeled for me in my faith journey, it's just it just feels more real. Like, that feels like part of what it means for things to be real. And so um, I think that's why it's part of my favorite Jesus. Um, I would just like to say, come, come swim in the water with me, Beth. It's warm. <laughs> it's warm and delicious, this water of um, emotional expression. Now, I've always loved a phrase I heard once from Eckhart Tolle, which he called, he, I think he, it was either, I think it was peace, peace in the background, because I am very emotionally expressive, but I do not feel that I am emotionally volatile. 
Like I, and I think that's probably what you're always trying to get at when you call me emotionally elastic. Like I can be very righteously angry, but it does not affect sort of my sense of self or overall equilibrium. Like I, I, it, it never makes me feel sort of unsteady to be righteously anger, angry or, um, weeping in empathy over a story I read, like, because I, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been doing it for a real long time and I can speak back really easily. And I think that that's something that I have, I, I don't have that elasticity. Like when I become emotional, the dam has broken and it's going to take some time to put it back together. Mm. And that's where I feel a little bit shortchanged. I am happy. And you can only really project calm. I think if you have that piece in the background, yeah. If because I really am happy that I can walk into very intense situations and not have my blood pressure move. And I don't think that I'm cold. It's never my intention to be cold. I just think that I, I ultimately feel okay. I feel like I can survive anything. I trust my own resilience. I trust my intuition in a very deep way. And I think that that is why I'm able to keep it together always because I feel I have it together. You know what I mean? I feel in the most fundamental ways that I am all right. And so are all of us. And whatever happens, we can get through it. I say to my six-year-old all the time, this is just a problem and we are equipped for problem solving. Mm. So we don't have to lose it because we're equipped to figure this out. At the same time, we can shed some tears in that process and and it's not going to take anything away from that. And I think that's what I'm coming to realize more as I get older. And something that I really love about older women is sort of the way they're able to access emotion. And I want to have that as part of my older woman story, too. Well, and that's the thing. It's so funny that you see that as a source of your calm, because that's what I see. That's what I'm trying to get to. Like, I always feel like, you know, in the election, people are like, are you really stressed? And I'm like, you know what? Everything is that's important to me will be the same the day after the election day. Like, there is a sort of steadiness and a confidence that I feel in myself and my family, and I am a happy, confident person, even when I am righteously furious about an injustice in the world. And so there is something to be said about having that sort of foundation um, on which to build. And so that you know, like, no matter how mad you are, how how sad you get, that there is, that it's like you said, it's going to be okay. One of my favorite resilient quotes, I quote my friend all the time, because I do think this is key to resiliency, which is, um, I had a friend in a organization who lost a baby the same time I did further, very far, far along in the pregnancy. And another friend went up to her and was like, checking on her, how are you doing? And oh my gosh, that's so sad. And my friend said, oh, I'm, I'm okay. I had a baby at 16. I'm pretty resilient. And I just loved the way she just put that out there. Like just, she knows who she is and what she can survive and sort of wears it in a way like so proudly. I thought it was so beautiful because I think there are some things that make us resilient that we feel shame about, even though we know it's a source of strength for us, um, especially as women. And I just love the way she said, like, no, I went, I've been through hard things and I survived them. And to just to, to say that with such pride in her own resiliency, has I've, I've, I've never have forgotten it. I love it so much. 
We promised in the last episode of Pansy Politics to pick up on the theme of sort of giving and taking in relationships without it being transactional, that sometimes mm-hmm. you're getting the space of giving and sometimes you're in the space of taking, that those things don't need to equalize moment by moment. And I honestly think that this shared piece in the background, I'm, I love that phrase, I'm going to steal it shamelessly all the time now. I think that that's why you and I can talk about anything. Because it's not transactional. We understand that sometimes we're going to be in a space of giving and sometimes we're going to be in a space of taking and that we're always going to be okay. I think neither of us approach any political issue or any spiritual issue or any parenting issue or any issue that I can think of as so life or death that it would take away from the relationship that we're building. Mm -hmm. And I think that's key in a lot of ways to healing some of the division in our country. It's having more of us have that sense of peace in the background that yes, things can happen that I don't like at all. Things can happen that I disagree with. Things can happen that I will spend the rest of my life fighting and to go back to Anne Lamont. Hallelujah. Anyway, Mm -hmm. we're okay. I think that there is something, this is a preview of our main segment, something I kind of want to get into, which is the, we prioritize the relationship in that we prioritize something outside ourselves. We prioritize something besides our own happiness, our own short-term gain, our own ego. And I think that that has gotten lost in so many areas in our life. And I'm starting to sound like a baby boomer in the myth of the golden age. And I don't believe in the myth of the golden age. But I do think there is some real self-reflective work we need to do as maybe just a human race, um, but particularly as Americans in our culture, of the idea that, like, my personal happiness or the absence of discomfort in my life is not the most important thing at every moment. And that is a huge understatement. I think you're right. And I think that that doesn't require nostalgia because in some ways, nostalgic perspective on that would be to the exclusion of lots of people. What we're talking about, I think, is a a go forward where we all understand that discomfort and transformation and evolution are ongoing and we are part of that, whether we like it or not. So let go or be dragged because that's what it is. And the process of letting go and saying the most important thing is that we're all in this together, is our shared connection with one another. And let's prioritize that over momentary discomfort. Let's understand how many things are temporary and treat them as such. Give them their proper place in our lives. And then there isn't any challenge too big for us. Then everything is just a problem that we're equipped for solving. We got kind of far afield of our favorite Jesus, but like, I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to talk about in this opening block, the Advent season. So we will move on to talk about that because this is maybe like the most sort of Advent focused I've been in recent holiday seasons for most of my life as a um, 
growing up in the Baptist church, Advent was just like a candy calendar. Like it was just the way to count down the 25 days. And it wasn't until um, I became an Episcopal and learned way more about the liturgical calendar that um, Advent took on sort of more and deeper meaning. And um, so this weekend I went to a bead making um, workshop with the a women's organization in my church called Daughters of the King. And they um, it was like very Advent focused and talking about the build up to the Advent season, um, preparing for the Advent season. And also I learned a lot about just the prayer bead tradition across faiths, which was totally fascinating. Then also my community does this amazing thing called the Advent Walk every year. We have um, five churches downtown. There is a um, historically black Baptist church, a Catholic church, Presbyterian church, my Episcopal church, and a Methodist church. And every church does a small um, service, usually like one musical number and a scripture reading. And then one church every year has like a little bit longer sermon and we walk. So we go to one service and then we walk to the next church and we go to the other service. So we go through all five churches in one evening with little Advent services. And just the the emphasis on what the beginning of Advent means and the anticipation of um, the arrival of the Christ child and really focusing on that aspect of the season. Um, also, in addition to these two events, um, Tish... Oxenrider, who runs the Art of Simple and um, is just an all-around amazing person, has this The really, Simple Show. <laughs> the Simple Show. Yes, The Simple Show. Um, she has a podcast. And she started a new podcast, which I'm going to be on, and I can't wait for that one, too. But um, she just did a new um, simple Advent guide, reading reflections and music based on the Book of Common Prayer. And the Book of Common Prayer um, is an, another... Um, liturgical guide that Episcopals and the Anglican Church use, which I absolutely love. It's my favorite thing about being Episcopal. And so she has, it's like super easy and it's, you can download it for a couple bucks. Well, a couple bucks, we'll put it in the show notes, but she has like a, just a simple, it's basically like if you miss a few days, you don't have to feel this pressure. It's just, you can light a candle. She has a reading based on the Book of Common Prayer. And my favorite thing is she has like an accompanying song. She always does like the best playlist in her like online classes and stuff. And so there's like a little song and you light a candle and she just asks simply every day, like, where did you see God today? Which I really love. And I just really enjoyed this whole sort of um, Advent weekend, the beginning of Advent season weekend I had. And I'm really looking forward to sort of staying in this reflective space, hopefully, as best I can over the next few weeks until Christmas. I really loved it. Jane and I did a reading for lighting the first Advent candle at our church this weekend. And I was so honored that our pastor asked us to do that. We've only been members of the church for about a year now. And um, it was a joy for me to see my six-year-old stand up and read in front of the church about Advent. And it was a really great experience for us. I think whether you are Christian or not, whether you are a person of faith or not, I think it's interesting to reflect on ritual. And for me, ritual has become so much more important in my life as I'm getting older. This probably connects to the conversation that you want to have next to Sarah. And and finding some sacred spaces and seeking out different meaning in traditions than you've had before. I loved the sermon at my church yesterday about Mary, my pastor, who is a woman. And I think that that speaks to me in a different way. Um, talked about how lots of little girls want to be Mary in living nativities, but probably Mary didn't want to be Mary. And she was talking about all the sacrifices that Mary that. had to make and all of the danger to Mary, the personal risk 
that was asked of her. And it was just one of the most moving sermons I've ever heard. And it really connected with how differently I feel about Christmas this year than I have maybe ever. It is a much more um, reflective time for me. And I don't know if that's because of the political climate or because of the Me Too movement or just because of all the things kind of swirling around that I am in search of that groundedness and that connection to something larger. But um, boy, my pastor stepped up and met that for me this week. I love that. The last sermon, also by a female minister in our Advent walk, was, uh, um, again, focused on Mary. And really, the point I love that she made, which is, it's not just that Mary was a young girl in that time period, wasn't just sort of an unlikely source of inspiration and the movement of God, but just, I mean, she was the property of her father. She was a all but a non-entity in society at that time. And so to choose a young, um, unmarried girl was sort of a very revolutionary act. She did a whole thing on it. It was really great. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, should we move on to talk about... Sarah texted me this weekend, y'all, and said, I'm going to talk about clothes. And I said, you know what? I have learned when you have something you want to talk about, we just need to go with it. So that's what we're going to talk about. So I want to talk about church clothes. Stay with me here. If you do not go to church or if you go to church and do not care about church clothes, I promise I have a bigger point here. Just stay with me. So I don't know your stance on this, Beth, but in my house... We have church clothes requirements. You must wear collars, you must wear pants, and you may not wear tennis shoes. Because I feel like it is important to signal sacred, the importance of sacred spaces with our clothing. Now, of course, I do not believe that if you cannot afford nice church clothes, if the only clothes available to you um, are dirty or sweats, or you have to come in barefooted, like that you shouldn't be able to enter. I hope that that is abundantly clear, that I do not think it should be an exclusion. But I do feel like in lots of spaces, clothing used to be a way to signal the importance of the event or the importance of the space. And for some reason, we are abandoning that. I would like to personally blame California, but I'm sure it's not totally their fault. If you're a listener in California, but like, I, I am I just being a fuddy duddy? I just think that this is important and we just seem to be abandoning it at a rapid clip. <laughs> um, I am not a great person to talk about fashion. Okay. Because I have never really valued it. I, but that's not fashion. Hey, that's not that's fashion. Not, okay. Formality and dress is not fashion. That's totally different. But here's my larger point about that. 
Um, so I've worked in a pretty conservative environment for my entire career. I have not worn closed-toed, open-toed shoes to work. I still wear pantyhose. Like, I, I have done the formal dress code thing. And I do think there is value in... I think there is a connection between the way you dress and the way you feel. Yes. I don't oh. think that means that other people need to write those rules for us. And so... I don't have to argue with my kids about what they wear to church because they want to wear dresses all day, every day for everything anyway. I have two (laughs) little girls and they would wear dresses every day. Jane wants to wear dresses when she has gym at school. I argue about, please put your tennis shoes on. So Uh it's a totally different conversation in my house. However, I really appreciate about my church that kind of everything goes. I do dress up for church because that is how I grew up and I sort of enjoy it now because I'm making that choice. There have been a couple of Sundays where I have dressed down a little bit, though, and I really appreciated that option to sort of match my mood with my clothing and to have that be about me instead of about anyone else. And so this is where maybe my um, streak of not liking authority comes in. At work, we now have a more use your judgment dress code, and I feel so much happier. And I feel like I know the people around me better because people are making decisions instead of kind of sporting a professional uniform. Okay. And so So, here's what I just think we should do then. Okay. Let's combine this. This is the nuanced path for me. This is where I think we should combine forces. Okay. We have a conversation where we all in an amorphous way (laughs) decide these are our values. This is what the, you know, because I just kind of feel like if we don't decide that we we talk a lot about sort of the the pressure we put on our institutions. OK, but if we remove the ability of institutions to put rules in place, then what is the institution composed of? Because if like I think that use your personal judgment is absolutely fine. Of course, use your personal judgment under the guidance of these rules and values that we believe are important for the institution. That doesn't mean we're using it to exclude you and punish you, which I think for too long is what institutions and the rules within institutions were used for or to exclude people. But I also think we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater and not all rules and institutional values are bad. And we leave the institutions themselves without any sort of cohesiveness, right? If we say, well, you know, whatever makes you happy, everybody do what they want. Like, because here's what else happened at church this weekend. So I'm at the bead thing and our um, one of the children in our church, <laughs> she's a little girl and she had heels on. She'd kick them off. And I said, um, and I, I took them over to her and I held them behind my back and I said, can I save you 30 years? And let you let you in on something that took me far too long to learn. And I pulled the heels out and I said, why'd you take these off? And she said, because they hurt. And I go, they never stop hurting ever. They never stop hurting. So use your money on a prettier dress or a dance class or whatever makes you happy and just skip it. Just skip this all thing that we all have to take so long to learn that high heels hurt our feet and mess up our backs and cost too much money. And let's, you know, and I said, when men start wearing them, I'll reconsider. But until then, let's let it go. And her mom says, well, I just think. Whatever, I'm just of the thing, like, whatever makes you happy. And, like, I know I'm going to sound like the conservative in this instance, but, like, no, 
Like, that's not what I teach my kids. My kids would eat candy every meal. If that's if we're just all going to do what makes us happy, how are we going to live in a group and agree on rules? I feel like I'm like full in the crown. This, this quote I think about all the time that I've talked about before when she's the, the Queen Elizabeth II wants to hire somebody out of the, the order of a seniority. And the guy says individualization is where the rot gets in. And they're all very traumatized by her husband, who, her, her uncle who abdicated the throne. But like this thought of like, yeah, individual, when we all decide we're more important than the institutions, then of course our institutions are left pretty baseless. And so if we're all saying, you know, there's got to be somewhere between use your best judgment and all men for the, and everybody for themselves and just do what makes you happy. And there's nothing left for us to sort of almost what we were talking about in the, in the beginning, like. There's no fan, there's no foundation for us to stand on and, and feel sturdy as we have these emotional conversations or as we do figure out what makes us happy because we've all just said, uh, we'll throw it out if somebody doesn't like it. I just don't know how that works in a society where we have to live together. And I told you all this was about much more than church clothes. Did I not? Oh, I have so many thoughts. So when you're talking about what is the value of institutions, I think that the value is not in the rules, but in the experiences, in the shared experiences that we have. Okay. And so I can have a shared spiritual experience at church without needing to care what other people are wearing there. For sure. If we are all in the mindset that this is a sacred space, we may have different expressions of what that means. I think maybe this gets back to a conversation we had on Pansy Politics a long time ago about Stonehenge. I was talking about how frustrating I found it that people were taking selfies at Stonehenge because, and please don't be offended if you've ever taken a selfie at Stonehenge. I recognize that I'm sort of out alone on this, but I felt like Stonehenge was this amazing, sacred space. And it just felt wrong to me to be whipping my phone out there. It just did. Like, I didn't want to take pictures. My husband did. And I didn't criticize him because, again, I'm not going to put my rules on everybody else either. But for me, I think we could have all had a different experience if everyone kind of agreed this is a sacred space and we need to respect it as such. And so I do think that we need some standards and some some guidelines and some agreements about what we're looking for. You know, you could you could think about restaurants as a great sociological mix, right? When you go to a really nice restaurant and the dress code is one facet of it, but the use of cell phones is another, whether you're staring at them and not talking to the people around you or whether you're talking loudly on a phone. Um, there are lots of ways in which I feel like a fuddy-duddy sometimes because I look around and think I'm not present right now and no one else either. No one else is either. And because we're not present here together, we're missing something. And what's the point of being here if we're not going to really be here? So I don't disagree with you about needing to have a sense of community and a sense of where my behavior impacts other people. For me, it just doesn't manifest in really personal choices about how you how you show up physically. It makes me think I'm reading um, Richard Rohr's fantastic book right now, and he quotes um, 
Pope John Paul, and I apologize, I don't remember which Roman numerals go with that Pope, but he said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Love it. That to me is like the guiding principle for this whole conversation. Because, Because here's the thing, though. You and all of those things, I think what I'm getting at is in all of those things, there has to be a, if not a sacrifice of self, at least an awareness of self. And, you know, when we talk about standards, there is going to be a time. So, like, let me take this time and say. My grandmother and my whole and my mother, my whole life have been like, you're being selfish. Look around you. And I bristled every single time. And I thought, ugh, they're fuddy duddies or they're ridiculous or they don't understand or I'm right because my ego was telling me I'm never wrong. But guess what? Most of the time they were freaking right. And so I just think like we miss we don't only miss the opportunity for presence, which I absolutely think clothing can be a part of. Like for me, putting on um, my best, that does not mean what your best and my best might not be the same. But like taking the effort, I think effort in your appearance can lead to a feeling of presence and a feeling of importance in the space. So whatever that is, when we or putting down your cell phone or whatever. Like there's going to be a time where somebody might suggest something. Like I I just kind of want to say like, you know, sometimes we're wrong. Sometimes you think you're doing something right and you're not. And I feel like that's almost a dang revolutionary statement right now. Like I wrote way back a long time ago when I had Griffin that I welcome unsolicited parenting advice. Because the idea that, oh, you're an expert in your own child, I kind of find a little ridiculous. And stay with me here before you start throwing things. The idea that a teacher who has studied child development, a daycare worker who has been around thousands of children and most likely raised her own, or female relatives, I'm talking mostly about women at this point, who've also raised generations and seen all these things has nothing to offer me and that I am the expert here to me is laughable. Like the idea that we can't learn from each other because we're just, it's this, um, I just feel like it's individualization is where the rocket's in again. I'm sorry. Like just this idea that like I am the center, I understand everything. I never do anything wrong. And so the suggestion that my priorities could be out of whack, that I might be making the wrong choice with my children or my health care or any my work, any sort of environment, it's like really problematic. Can we just admit that like maybe we get things wrong and we can learn from each other? And if somebody is offended by your use of a cell phone, that it doesn't mean it makes you a bad person. It just means like, I don't know, maybe I should think about it. That's all I'm asking. That's really all I'm asking. It's just a little... Like, pause, doesn't mean you're a bad person, but if somebody, like, has a standard or a value that you don't see the importance of, the agreement we make as human beings in this process together, be it a church or a school or a state or a city or a nation, is to say, I'm at least going to hear you and think maybe that I'm not right every single time. I don't know. Is that too much to ask? I don't think it's too much to ask. And I don't think that on the flip side, wanting to make those choices means that you don't value all of that advice. 
I love advice. It's like my too. favorite thing. I Me love too. it. Me too. Why do I people hate learn. advice? Oh, I love advice. I want to learn all the things. I also want to decide for myself after I've learned them. And so this gets back to giving and taking without those things being a one-to-one ratio every time. If you offer your advice to me, I also need you to respect that there might be things going on in the background that you don't know. Mm -hmm. And so I might not take your advice. I might really appreciate and value it and not take it. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. So we might say for us, coming to church in our best is a part of our experience of the sacred For someone else, just getting there might be such a challenge that it's not part of the sacred for them, Mm. right? And so I can have that norm in my family without uh, imposing it on someone else, and I don't lose anything in that process. And I think that's what I always want to be open to. Well, here's my question, though. When we decide to come experience the sacred together as a group— how much of our personal decision-making should be about how our decisions might affect others' experience of the sacred. That's where I think this quote is so helpful. What is essential to the experience of the sacred? And shouldn't we decide that as a community? Okay. That's where I come out. What is essential to our experience of the sacred? For me, it is that phones aren't ringing during church. Mm-hmm. It is not, though, that babies aren't crying. Oh, I yeah, think it's I a wonderful babies. thing when churches welcome children and don't encourage, don't make you feel guilty yeah. if your children make the sounds that children make. Bring there the are babies. I can't, disagree with that. I barely you know? hear them anyway. Yeah. So I think we have to have some discussions about those things. I mean, every time I've led kind of an intense workshop or a meeting, I start with what are our shared agreements about this meeting? Mm. Do we all agree that what is said here stays here? Like that always sounds great, but sometimes that doesn't work at all. Let's Mm -hmm. have a conversation about that. Mm -hmm. Do we agree that we want to hear from every voice in the room? If so, are we willing to not talk sometimes when we have something to say? Are we willing to go around the table? Um, I always start with that because I think clarity about what the essentials are solves this. And I think a problem and the problem that you're describing in a lot of ways is that we don't have clarity about that. And so we're all just, that's where individualization is the problem. We're all just individually deciding what the rules are and what the Mm -hmm. priorities of those rules are. And we're Mm -hmm. getting mad when other people don't live up to our unarticulated expectations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. So how do we get there? I mean, I think my model not to, not to offer unsolicited advice is a good one. Like when you are with a group of people, I think starting with what are our agreements is really important. My yoga teacher training did that. Like, like there are very simple examples in life where you would think that's not necessary or it's overkill where it's still helpful. I think it's a helpful model in our house. Sometimes if Jane is going to help me cook, I will quickly say, Hey, We're going to be using the stove. It's going to be hot. So off limits is you putting your hand over here. And we just get right down to let's distill what the essentials are. And then in the non-essentials, I'm going to give you liberty. Do what you want to do in the non-essentials. And I'm going to have grace for you in the whole process of this thing. And I think if we could kind of incorporate that into our daily lives more, we might start to build the skills that would allow us to 
bring it to our churches or our community organizations or heaven forbid our political parties, you know, and our and our civic institutions. Well, that's the problem, though, is when we can't agree on the essential the essentials, though. Right. But we're not having that conversation right now, are we? I don't think we're having the conversation about what the essentials are. In what space? <laughs> in any space. In oh. any space. I mean, except you and I when are. somebody <laughs> lays down the rules. That's the only time it happens. And then usually other people are going to be resentful because deciding the rules wasn't an inclusive process. Mm. Yeah. Man, that's so hard. That's so hard. But I mean, what what do you want to happen about clothing? At, like, if you think about that, because this has been on your mind, it doesn't bother me for a school to, in an inclusive process with the parents, sit down and settle on a dress code. I think that's fine. Yeah. Right? As long as everybody's had a chance to weigh in and it's been thought through. The other skill that we have to bring that bring to that, though, is disagree and commit. Mm-hmm. The whole Jeff Bezos thing about, like, we need to have an open process. We all come together. We air out what we think. But at the end, we need to agree that what our community decides, we will, even if we disagree, we will commit to it. Right. right. We're not great at that. No, we're not. We're not great at that at all. Everybody just opts out once they're mad. <sighs> and sometimes they're mad because the process wasn't inclusive. And I understand that. Yeah. I, I fully understand that. So it's a two-way street. It's, but I don't it's know where to move forward from that. street. You know, it's like this is the conversation we're having in my city. We clarified that the Veterans Day parade was only for American flags, which affected the sons of the Confederacy, which used to fly a Confederate flag. And their point is you should have included us from the beginning. Okay, I'm sorry. So where do we go? Okay, so what do you want me to do? Go back in time in a time machine? Like if the process wasn't inclusive... How do we move forward from that? I mean, I think that's where town halls and open forums are really helpful. Yeah. And and you can have these, you can just air all of this out. And maybe one of the essentials at the beginning is what I've seen you very passionately say about Paducah. We're all in this together. Mm-hmm. And whatever we decide, I know that we can get through it. Because you're not ever going to make everybody happy. Right. But I and think we've all decided that since we can't ever make anybody happy, we're not going to try to make anyone happy ever. And we're just going to each get our little piece. As much as I can grab, I'm going to grab it because no one can be happy all the time. That we've decided is not be- the way to live as a community. And Or we've decided, and I see this nationally predominantly, that if if the process wasn't what I wanted it to be, then that means the process is inherently corrupt and we need to burn it down. Right. Like, we'll just... All is lost, which surely that's not our takeaway. (sighs) I think that's not the takeaway. I think some things are lost, and that's okay, too. We Mm -hmm. have to be willing to get to that as well. So, I mean, I guess I just, you know, I think that there is, I guess what I'm asking for in all our institutions is maybe just an awareness that clothing can be a signifier, that clothing, the idea that, um, just because clothing has been used in the past to exclude doesn't mean that it has like we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And in our institutions and on our individual levels, maybe we could have a conversation about that. Sometimes we signal the importance of things with our appearance and our clothing, and that's OK. And 
I would like to see us do that. Like, let's just let me just be real about this. Like, do we all think that people would act better on airplanes if we weren't all rolling in in our pajamas? Like, I'm just saying there are some spaces here where if we had a little more formality, people wouldn't act. Some people wouldn't act (laughs) Um, in such a like dismissive and arguably disrespectful way. I'm just saying. I don't want to wear pajamas yeah, on a plane, but come on. I mean, I 100% don't care if you wear your pajamas on an airplane. And this is yeah, where but I, I do, am. But I do if you put your bare foot on my um, armrest. And I think there's a connection. I really do. I think there's a psychological connection there. So I don't. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of a, a gentler way to say that. Um, I, I don't. However, I I am open to let's discuss what our standards of conduct as a community are, as long as we are all discussing them. I I do believe, like, I'm just a pretty casual person in my heart of hearts in every way. I don't like hierarchy. Um, I was in a meeting today where I was the the youngest person in the room by a lot. And, um, there were mostly older men running the meeting and one of them kept coming back to me and he said, I don't want to put you on the spot, but are we saying anything that you really disagree with? What are we missing? Are we being myopic here? And I want you to help us with that. And a part of me kind of thought like, is that condescending? But then the rest of me said, Beth, he is trying to do exactly what you ask people to do all the time. Be open to that. Be appreciative of it. Celebrate it. And so I did. I, that's how that was the attitude that I adopted. And I think that sense of I know that's kind of far afield from clothing, but that sense of like taking a beat and having some respect for the people around you and being generous in your interpretation of what they're doing is really healthy. And so that's why for me, clothing is not. I don't feel very generous when I'm assessing the clothing of people around me. I do, however, have no problem with saying no one should put their foot on my chair on an airplane. We should be aware of the people around us and treat them with some dignity and respect. Agreed. We went. We're probably just not going to find agreement, though, on like the proper dress code for airlines. I'm thinking. I mean, I'm not saying a proper (laughs) one, but like any dress code. How about just a discussion of any sort of because dress has to be a it has to be a discussion of the code of conduct too i think because for better or for worse how you look affects well i think it affects how you act maybe you don't but like i just think that you know i think that that could be a part of it too like you know bare feet seems to be something we should talk about like bare feet in spaces that are shared with other human beings is problematic it just it kind of is right like just hygienically I just am very you to you about that. I, I don't care. I guess Ugh. here's here's what I'm thinking as you're saying that. I think I'm getting clear in my mind on what I want to say. How I dress impacts how I feel. I don't know that it impacts what I do necessarily. But maybe that's because I am wired for being deferential. I am mm. wired for kind of like I... Everything I do is super deferential to the people around me. That's my Enneagram 
2 coming out. Like, there are lots of parts of me that are wired that way. And so for me, whatever I'm wearing, I'm always probably going to be pretty polite and pretty deferential to the people around me. And that is just wholly separate from how I dress. And so when I am able to wear jeans to my very professional job, something about that on occasion makes me feel more accepted and more like I belong there than when I'm wearing the very formal dress that doesn't feel like me at all. Yeah. And I think that's why I'm pushing back so hard against this idea of being the clothing police, because it doesn't connect so much with behavior for me. But I think some people, I think there is a proportion of the population for which dress is a self-expression. I think for most of us, it's a form of self-expression. And I think um, that there are people who, what they are expressing, and they are purposely using clothing to express the idea of, you don't like it, F it, I don't care. I do. I think there are people who dress in a way that is to push boundaries, to make other people uncomfortable, to assert their own um, individualization. I, I do. I think there are people who use it to just like, I mean, you see the t-shirts people wear, you see the way um, people dress. And I think it's a very challenging, you don't like it. Good. That's why I wore it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I think there are people like that. And like, I just, it's not like I want to like be the closing police and put them in jail, but I, you know, in the same way that I think I don't like I think that there's a pushback against political correctness, which is just like be aware of others. I think we in clothing have lost any awareness of how of others like and that that is a signal to others and that that is a like it shouldn't be used as a weapon, which I think people do use it as a weapon often the way they dress and what they put on their bodies and the way they express themselves. Um, it's not that I don't think that, you know, look, we all need challengers. We all need boundary pushers in our society. There are roles for people, activists and people to, to push and push and push. And clothing has always been a way to do that. Um, but I, I just think that we, it has become in a, in a way, it's almost like, I feel like we need a little bit of like political correctness for clothing, which probably makes me the most unpopular American on the planet, because those are two things that I think it's just become the, the, the a relentless drive to abandon um, standards of clothing. Like, that's what we do. We're a liberal progressive society, and we want to abandon all standards for how people dress. And I don't, I'm just saying, like, pump the brakes a little bit, guys. Like, maybe not all standards of clothing should be wholly and completely abandoned. Um, not that they should be used as a tool of exclusion, like I said, but, like, before we just say... You do you. Everybody dress however the hell you want. Like, let's just like, let's have a a small ish conversation about like, I mean, I don't want to see like shirtless men in airports. I don't want to see people putting their bare feet on a church pew. Like, I don't like I just think that there's we got to There's got to be like just a couple like foundational things before we just say yoga plants for one and all. Listen, I am currently wearing yoga pants. Okay, literally sitting in a pair of yoga pants with no makeup and a hoodie on right now. It's not that I have a problem with casual clothing. I am not a person that wears makeup every day that gets all fancy. Like I understand, but I don't know. I I feel like we've sort of lost all, um, like we've just, we're going, we're going too far. We're going too far. I want us to pump the brakes a little bit and pull back on the all casual clothes theme, flip flops for all 
no matter where you are, no matter the circumstances. Just saying. Well, hilariously, I have on tights and a skirt and a scarf and jewelry Perfect. and the whole nine yards as Perfect. we're having you this know discussion. Why? Because we're nuanced. That's why. <laughs> um, I guess my question is, I, I agree with a lot of what you said. I mean, I, I'm not interested in, I, I really dislike it when I see a shirt with offensive language on it that my kids can read. Yeah, right? There are things on. where I do feel actively disrespected by the people around me. On my on a personal level, I also am pretty committed to trying to be less judgmental with every passing year of my life. And so I guess there are levels of all of this, right? Because I don't want to have con- I just don't want to have conversations about tattoos and piercing and hair. Like I just I don't want to do that. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to care about it. I want to be full on good for you, not for me on things like that. So on just sort of the fundamental, where do we feel respected or disrespected by one another in a healthy way? I guess my question would be, how might we inspire people to consider one another? Okay, I like because, that. I like where you're going here. I like this. Because enforcing it doesn't work mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. you're already trying to dress to give to be a walking middle finger. Mm. Um, you're going to have that urge even more if we have a bunch of rules about it. This is good. This is good. I feel in this. Okay. <laughs> so how do we inspire um, a, a sense of this is a sacred space or this is a nice restaurant and we all want to have a certain experience here or this is an airport and let's be more cognizant of each other. How do we inspire that conversation? Oh, that's really good. And I don't know the answer. I like it, though. I like where you're going with this, and I think you're right. And so here's here's my call to action. I think there is a vast, this is what I would like to inspire. I think there is a, a big um, majority of the population, I would argue, the, let's call them the silent majority for the time being, who um, are not the walking middle finger for sure, but also are probably not um, maybe dedicating as much time to church clothing as I am inside their own brains. Okay. So all the rest of you who like don't think about church clothes on a regular basis obsessively like I do. And like, I think that there's a space for some of us who have kind of taken the path of least resistance in our culture um, and do that a lot to just take a beat and think about it. Like, I'm not saying, like, you got to start ironing. Like, I don't iron. I think irons are stupid. But maybe just if we could all just, like, take a take a minute, take a beat. We don't have to burn our yoga pants. But just to say, is there a space where I could just exert, like, 2% more effort in my appearance to inspire the middle finger people to reconsider? What about that? What about that? I'm good with that. And I would I would love to think more about just how we interact with each other generally and what attitude we bring and how we show up and how we can be more present. We talked um, on Pansy Politics once about my strategy for driving, where if someone cuts me off or something, I, instead of reacting to that, just pause and say, be careful, friend, and how revolutionary that's been in my life. And now when I interact with people in public spaces who are being foolish, I always think maybe this person didn't get loved enough today. And that helps me through that. 
And I'm trying to bring that sense of things more to everything I do. Just uh, like, how can I be radically kind and radically patient and radically gracious with other people? And I do think that that influences my behavior. I would like us to retire the middle finger as a country. Mm. I think that is beneath us. And again, no offense if that's your go-to. I'm just saying I'm ready to put that behind us because mm-hmm. I, I think we are all walking around like Yosemite Sam right now. True. We're ready to get angry about anything. We are kind of in this attitude of like, I don't affect anybody around me. Now, for me, clothing isn't the, the ultimate expression of that, but I hear what you're saying. And so if a, if a thoughtfulness about the way we present opens the door to a thoughtfulness about how we think about each other and and how we respond because of how we're thinking about each other. I am all in on that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We're good. Okay. I think we fixed it. That's a good, that's, that is a good productive episode of the nuanced life. Thoughtfulness. So we end... thoughtfulness is definitely what I'm asking for here. That's all. Yes. Well, we will end as always with kind of an inspirational tidbit connected to the conversation that we've had. And Sarah, you have a friend who preached a beautiful opening of Advent Advent sermon and wanted to share some of that. So my friend Aaron Stamper is a minister at Cross of Grace in Indianapolis, and he uh, was inspired by some conversations we've been having about Me Too uh, movement on pantsuit politics and a little bit on the nuanced life. And so he shared his sermon, which we will um, link to in full, but I loved this closing few paragraphs that he um, shared with us. In this season of Advent, characterized by anticipation of the arrival of God in a new way, both through the manger and through the cross, I hope that women will continue to be inspired and encouraged by the ones who are speaking up and demanding justice. I hope that women will seek out allies and continue to share their stories. I hope men will listen to women who have been victimized and dedicate themselves to serious reflection. I hope that Cross of Grace can be a safe and open space to accomplish some of this meaningful work. I hope women will persevere even when people tell them they are wrong and that that's just how the world works because God has a habit of disrupting the way the world works when the world doesn't work for everyone equally. So maybe my disclaimer at the beginning of the sermon was unnecessary. Maybe this actually is a message of joy. Joy in the despair, joy in the honesty, and joy at God's promise that something new, beautiful, inclusive, and just will be born out of the struggle. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. We'll be back with you next week. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. 